joining. I'm Norbert Gierke. I'm the founder and representative director of Tokyo Fintech and very delighted today to have three distinguished gentlemen presenting. Excited to kick off today with Transforming Japanese Business, which has been published as a book with Will Baber as one of the co-editors and Kieran Gain and Raja Karim as two of the contributors. I think that's all we have and then hand it over to Will. We published the book at the very beginning of the year, 2020. So it is essentially based on 2019 information and ideas and so on. That was before we knew about COVID. Things have changed. And I'll talk a little bit about what we're experiencing pre and during COVID and what kind of expectations we might have about the post-COVID world. The ideas around digital transformation here in Japan were going very slowly. And there were some barriers that we could identify in the book. These were things would expect, like everybody's concerned about payback and return on investments. So you make big investments and this is a barrier because it's a risk to an organization. Another barrier here is aging technology infrastructure. And inside of companies, I mean, not so much broadband, where, where Japan is quite good. Also, legacy business systems and the technological debt that grows and grows inside of companies as you make patches and work on old systems and do something to improve it a little bit, but fail to replace the system, you build up increased costs and problems in what we call technological debt. Parallel to that technological debt, then your regulatory and legal compliance systems are going to work with what the big leading organizations, financial organizations, leading banks and insurance companies, you know, what they do or fail to fix or fail to improve reflects in the regulatory system. And that additionally creates a barrier, a lack of a need to transform. So another part of this then is the unwillingness to disrupt the business partner networks. If you're a company somewhere in the middle of the food chain, some of your partners may be pushing for digital changes and improvements in this kind of transformation, and other ones may be lagging behind. So if you're not a power player in that chain, then you may not feel comfortable or you may not have the power to get your partners to react and move. And if you change too much, you'll be out of step with them. Then you'll have problems and so on and so forth. So there is a group inertia that explains the slow speed of transformation. Lack of knowledge and comfort level in management, in upper management. In Japan especially, upper management tends to have come up through the ranks. They're not always technologically savvy. So we have a really great example of this with a former minister in Japanese government who was not at all able to use kind of normal day-to-day -day computer systems. Of course, then there's cybersecurity concerns because nothing is more safe than old-fashioned paper. Paper has a role to play in some systems, but if you're going to be digital, even partially, you've got to have up-to-date secure systems. The very last one on this list is kind of interesting. There's a lack of ability in management to understand what the workers need. There is a serious generation gap, probably in most countries, but here in Japan, there's a generation gap that's quite big between your senior management, the guys who've come up through the ranks and they're in their mid 50s or early 60s, and they're the safe hands who are guiding the company. 
the younger workers, well, that means millennials, are people who have different expectations than their senpai and the older people in the company and the middle managers. And they have very different expectations than their parents, who were typically were salary men. And they have very different expectations and desires and goals. So they're not quite so interested in being at work so many hours and spending their free time with coworkers. In fact, they would like to get that free time. So in order to understand them, senior management has to spend time and money and commit the resources to understand what they're doing. Nuts and bolts, basic anthropology and ethnography. Not surprisingly, a lot of companies don't really have this skill set to really figure out what their next generation people need. This is another barrier where businesses are not able to uh, create environments that workers might be excited about. Now, on the other hand, there were accelerating trends that we found that really pushed digital transformation here in Japan into something that is inevitable. And we identified some of these pressures and the particular sectors that they would connect with. The overseas partners are part of the value chain that I mentioned, them, and they are typically pushing towards digital integration at the design level and supply level. And this plays very well into just-in-time supply. So that's a pressure. FinTech is something that Japan got some very strong points in. So this is infrastructure and regulatory infrastructure that is already well-developed and available. So that makes possibilities. Again, then there is a generational change coming up. It seems that more of the companies are more willing to bring on a younger person. The family-owned companies now are in a phase in the past five years and coming five to 10 years where quite a lot of heads of the business will be handing over to a generation below them. And this also makes an opportunity for new culture change. Digital transformation is, of course, about culture and about technologies. It's not only sensors and software, it's also how people interact with that. So it's very much a culture thing. Then, of course, there is the population drop in Japan that is underway and will be accelerating and will be quite a dramatic change in how hiring happens and how retention happens in Japan. We can't know how that's going to play out, but that's going to have dramatic impact on automation, robotization, and it's going to come out especially in sectors like manufacturing and uh, services for elder care specifically agriculture is going to be very positively impacted by roboticization. And of course, that we didn't draw a line to retail, but I'm sure we'll see more interesting and exciting vending machines. And of course, vending shops have already been piloted in Japan. I'm sure they'll be back. There's going to be a controversy about whether Japan innovates or doesn't innovate. So on the one hand, companies are doing incremental innovation constantly. So there's constant refreshment of products and services and customers, especially retail customers, are very appreciative of that. They, they really will move and change their spending habits based on what comes out that's new and interesting. Different question is whether this kind of innovation really applies and is successful at the larger scale. So we don't see a world winning Japanese company like a Facebook or a Google or something like this. So th there were some very strong players and close hits. And of course, there are very big players internationally like Sony, which is constantly taking big risks in the gaming world. So we can't just dismiss Japan as not innovative enough. 
Also, Japan has a significant history of performing under pressure and really making change. I do see a lot of change coming up in Japan and a lot of positive change. And it's very likely that we'll see some pretty exciting stuff come out of the industries around us and what we see. So during COVID now, we see that the main driver of, of money and the main driver of change would seem to be working from home. Work from home is a reality. And to the credit of Japan, Japanese businesses uh, and public organizations, they moved very fast and pretty successfully to institute something that was culturally alien to them. And you couldn't get the conversation started about working from home and, and remote working and flexible work in 2019. And lo and behold, March, April, May 2020, Japan was doing very, very well. Fast implementations and, and quick reaction, very flexible. There's quite a tradition of unproductive work in white collar offices in Japan. The blue collar world is fantastically clear cut and productive about their working hours and stopping. The white collar world is lamentably different. If work from home collapses or, or shuts down, then we may not see permanent impact. And this will return us to the situation that people are blocked from full time work because of elder care or because of child care or something like this. I hate to say that we want COVID to continue, but we do want to see positive impacts from it. And this is one. So cybersecurity plays into this too because of work from home. It means that all organizations have a broader attack surface that puts them at greater risk. And I want to make a shout out to the education world in Japan, which I'm part of and my kids are part of. If you're familiar with the grade schools in Japan, it's not at all surprising to see teachers and staff working there with the lights on at seven o'clock at night. That's a terrible situation. However, they were able to move very quickly to get online classes, cutting out uh, commute times. There were some workflow changes, so that became more digital. Most grade schools, K through 12, have gone back to face-to-face -face classes. I certainly hope on behalf of the teachers that there has been a lot of efficiency gained. This is a great example of Japan moving very fast, making real changes, and hopefully capturing the benefits. The last point is, Japan has traditionally had weak in-house IT skills and therefore has had to do a great deal of outsourcing and offshoring, including uh, outsourcing to temporary teams has been quite the norm. Not a lot of IT capacity has built up in the organizations. You know, it's too soon to know, but anecdotally get the impression that there's a little more emphasis on building that capacity in-house and keeping the skills. Post-COVID, of course, we don't know what will happen. We don't know when post-COVID will be here. So we don't know what will happen with work from home. And we don't know if these workflows will really sink into the workplace and the, and the jobs. We don't know if the more radical steps and investments uh, will come about. There are some things that are already clearly underway. These are seeds in the ground. And some of these were planted well ahead of COVID. Society 5.0 is one of these. So this is a, an initiative that has been underway for some time with a real projects are highly uh, digitalized, new future urban kind of infrastructures. This can generate quite a lot of value. I think Japan appears to be in a good position, a little bit ahead of the curve on these, but it's not the only place in the world that these are being tested and developed. 
Japan's hydrogen economy is relatively far along, and that means physical infrastructure as well as equipment and so on to use it and take advantage of it. So internationalization is another issue here. Japan's 2030 initiative that was started around 2009 or 10 was successful in bringing in quite a lot more new people and creating positions for them in Japan. When we look around university laboratories and national laboratories, RIKEN and so on, we saw a few international people. Now we look at them and we see a much higher percentage of people there. This is undoubtedly a big plus point because it benefits dissemination of technology into and out of the country. So Japan turns out to be pretty popular among foreign people who come to work here. My last point is that globalization is going now in a different direction than it was a couple of years ago. With the arrival of right-wing politics and especially the Trump administration in the U.S., we've seen a series of hits to what we understood as globalization. So our idea of globalization was basically that you took advantage of cheap labor somewhere else. So that meant manufacturing in Bangladesh and China. And so that's simple globalization 1.0. That's taken a hit because of politics, because of countries dominating a particular product. China switched off the supply of um, rare earth elements that are vital for displays, for example, and, and OLEDs and so on. Twice, if we remember, uh, between 2010 and 15. The new reaction to this is going to be quite different. If it digitalizes, it'll be radical. Japan's government is serious about modernizing and updating, and we only have to look at the blockchain for a really good example of an aggressive move into the future. And that is not only finance, but also land ownership and real estate and property. So Japan has uh, legacy property unclarities problems as a hangover from the Edo period. And that's a radical move forward to take control of that complicated an issue. Kieran had a view on that as well. So that's a good transition. And thank you, Will. Kieran, you can take it all. I was going to just uh, reply on that a little bit. I was going to say the Japanese tendency to focus on risk and try to work out how to mitigate it could be one of the levers that helps this digitalization continue. Probably somewhere in the government there, renewing all their plans around these kinds of pandemic. That's what I'm hoping anyway, and that hopefully should include the ability to work digitally. I know that Will implied that the book was maybe a little bit out of date now, but by no means is that true, everyone. I just wanted to reassure you. Today, I'll be talking about two things. The first is to give a waiver of the chapter that I contributed to the book. And the second then is a case study of a company which has changed its organization to be you know, really digital. In this chapter, it was entitled The Digital Transformation Execution in Japan. But you, know, you can think of it as being applicable to almost any transformation. And I talk about the challenges and, of course, language is always a challenge here because you have three groups of people, those that only speak Japanese, those that only speak the other language, and then you have the people in between the bilinguals who can speak both, and each of those have a different knowledge set. The challenge there is always to understand who has what information to make sure the right information gets into the right place. Cultural, of course, and for this I was relying on Hofstede, two books really, Hofstede and there. And they talk about things such as uncertainty avoidance here in Japan. You know, the fact that generally Japanese people like to be very certain about what's happening. It's the reason they ask so many questions. They want to plan in detail. 
And it's something you've got to handle as part of the transformation. Of course, the traditional hierarchies here can be very rigid as well. So you've got to consider those because it can inhibit communication up the chain, not so much down the chain of command. And then avoiding confrontation as well is a tendency with uh, many Japanese people as well to not speak up and not say uh, what they disagree with. The last challenge then is environmental. So it's not just the market here. It's not just the organizations, the government organizations we need to work with, but it's even the customer themselves. So you know, Japanese customers tend to be very picky. And if they have a bad experience with the company, up to 50% of them won't go back to it. That's uh, in comparison to other countries uh, where obviously the variety is there, but it can be you know, 20 or 30%. The next set then is the key success factors. Obviously tailoring you know, any business model you want to bring to Japan, you've got to tailor it to Japan. You've got to understand the market, work with your partners, make sure that the business model that you implement is really fit for Japan. Partnering, of course, with those business partners, with your teams, you've got to be able to work together They've got to be able to tell you anything. You've got to be able to tell them anything. Without that true partnership, it's not going to work. And then communication, obviously, is part of that as well. Not just the formal communication, but the informal, you know, how you build those relationships, how you keep talking about things, but also you keep communicating about the change that you're bringing and how it's going to work. You know, lastly, then opportunity. And I think for people that have been in Japan for a long time, you understand that it's a great place. It's a great market. It's a large market as well. And often the teams here have very, very good execution capability. So if you can bring the right model and find the right partners, you can have a really good opportunity to make a lot of money here. That's quickly about the chapter of the book. And next, I'm going to talk about building the digital organization. I'm really focusing on the organization itself. Of course, you need the digital tools, you need the processes, but the organization is just as important because if you don't have the right organization, you won't be able to move forward as quickly as you want. The hierarchies will still be in place and the silos as well. When you consider digitalization, why are we doing this? The big reason is that many companies have a large amount of organizational debt. And organizational debt is a term coined by Steve Blank. And he, he termed it initially for startups but it applies to any company. And it's the changes, the old practices that companies have, which they haven't changed, we haven't brought up to date, which actually hold them back. And I give a few you know, examples of this. The first one is a quote from Jim Whitehurst, the CEO of Red Hat. Red Hat is famously a very flat organization. And this is what he says, traditional leadership hierarchies are dead or should be. Now, they do inhibit communication. There's so many layers, there's so many approvals required. They really delay any kind of execution. Next then is function-based organizations. I mentioned silos. When companies are function-based, they tend to optimize within that function. So operations works for itself. You have marketing and sales, you know, just working within their own organization to optimize as they can. But this is linked to the next point here. This means that the value streams which deliver value to the customer, they can be undefined and they're definitely, definitely suboptimal. So if you can't bring the organization together to look at that value stream as a single unit and evaluate it together, then you're not going to make the progress you want. Next is low employee engagement. And this is a problem all around the world. Employee engagement is incredibly low. It's anywhere, I think, under 50%. Employees don't enjoy what they do. 
They don't feel they have any control over their processes. They're not really interested and so don't put in their best effort. And lastly then, old methodologies and processes. So this can be old project methodologies, for example, but also processes such as the annual budget process. You know, it's a very old process in many companies. The validity of that budget decays very quickly after its initial creation. Then for this company in the case study, these are the basic steps to implementation. And it wasn't really planned from the start by the management. It really happened organically based on some experimentation, proof of concept. And as it often does, it, it started in IT, where they were experimenting with Agile in one or two areas to see you know, whether it would improve things, and it did. So the company decided to set up a, a single cross-functional team, a proof of concept, working in Agile for a single product. And this included not only the IT people, but some of the operations, the sales and marketing together as well. This went extremely well good feedback, not only from management, but the teams themselves were more engaged and the speed of delivery was much better. So they decided to expand this across several other teams and they got very similar feedback. So the decision was made to expand this to the whole company. And once you do that, of course, you need to understand at a company level how it's going to work. It's very difficult to come up with something yourself. So they looked at several models globally and they selected the ING transformation model. Of course, as I mentioned before, you can't use it as is. You need to tailor anything to Japan and your company. So they set about tailoring it, designing the, the company they wanted. At the same time, they looked at the physical environment. Difficult work in fixed desks without any collaboration spaces if you're working in Agile. So they, they changed the physical environment. And then, of course, uh, training and coaching. So many people, particularly on the business side, really didn't have an understanding of how Agile works. So they gave them initial training, but also continued to give them coaching. For the first set of sprints, they set objective key results. So these were results designed by the teams themselves, targets they wanted to meet over the next three months. Lastly, then they had a big kickoff event. This was an event with over 500 people over a couple of days. And it was really there to get everyone on the same page, to get everyone started together. You know, this is the structure I mentioned the ING transformation model, and this is really based on the squad. So the squad is a team of up to nine people. It's multi-skilled, that cross-functional team. It's self-organizing, and it's given the, the power and the authority over the product that it owns. The tribe then is a collection of these squads, and sometimes a group of products or a group of missions enables them to come together and discuss you know, how they need to work together, as inevitably they have to sometimes. And then you have across the horizontal, the chapters, so supporting teams, centers of excellence, people with the common skills that can get together, share ideas. And then from the roles, you have the product owners, of course, who are responsible for the backlog, the scrum master who drives the processes and looks for productivity improvements, the tribe lead over a number of squads. And this is really to just make sure the squads are working in harmony and as required to set guardrails. And then the chapter leads who are responsible for really the line manager for the teams and then promoting personal growth and innovation within the skill set. A number of focus areas. You know, the company recognized that it was important to really have a culture that, that's open to change. And this was actually started before the agile transformation. And the first one, most important one, was psychological safety. And this is extremely important in Japan, where people can be a little bit risk averse. You know, you've got to explain to people that you want them to challenge, take on challenges, to take some risk. 
Empowerment to distribute decision-making is also you know, very important. If you don't give the teams the ability and don't the ability to make decisions and let them know that they can move forward without consulting management all the time, they won't be able to do so. Next point then around career advancement, to let people know, you know how they can advance in their careers, what the paths are through the new organization to senior positions. Fourth then, employee happiness and is something which is ongoing. Uh, every month or so, there's a survey around how you're feeling, what is working for you, what isn't working. Uh, it can get a little repetitive sometimes, but it gives you an outlet to uh, you know, voice any concerns that you have. Next then is the MVP experimentation Kaizen mindset. And of course, this goes hand in hand with Agile. Last is the extent of sharing new ideas, tools and successes. This was not just done at a local level, it was done globally. So each of the different areas are shared by Yammer or mail or videos, what they were doing, what was working, what didn't work, anything which they thought would be useful to other teams to know. So it really created an ongoing learning environment. But of course, you know, there's always challenges whenever you take on any such sort of transformation. Uh, the first is the alignment of squad objectives. Of course, when you have different squads working independently, there's always a chance that they will want to do different things. And sometimes it might not make sense. You know, sometimes you've got to allow it. And so uh, as part of the three-month cycle of renewing priorities, this was also looked at to make sure that the squads didn't uh, go too far. Reinforcing the culture and mindset, it's so easy to fall back into old ways of working. So this was continually stressed and examples given to the teams every two weeks. And there were sprint reviews, of course, looking at the products of the teams. But uh, every month or so, there were also discussions around the mindset, the way of working as well. You also need a bit of governance sometimes. If multiple squads have the same target customers, you've got to make sure that those target customers get a consistent message. They're not bombarded if it's from marketing with emails. Working with traditional partners, internal, external, was also a challenge. If you're stuck in the middle and you want to work agile but your partners don't, it can be very difficult to. This company also has a, a large global component to its IT architecture. That continual view of what should be local, what should be global, particularly in Japan with the language difficulties as well, that continues to be a point of difficulty and one of the challenges. Lastly then, encouraging ambition. It's easy for the teams to take little steps to get the quick wins. But what you really want them to do is to take the bigger steps and go for those bigger challenges as well. Part of the challenge of some of the product owners and the tribe leads was to push the teams to try and do a little bit more. Okay, the benefits then, the company has a much reduced hierarchy. There are far fewer managers and those managers now doers. They can be product owners, they can be scrum managers, they can be tribe leads or chapter leads, but they're much more hands-on than they used to be. Next then is the employee understanding of the business and the engagement. Because the squads are cross-functional, because they work together all the time, IT understands the marketing piece, understands the sales piece. Now, sales and marketing understand how some of the IT works and some of the restrictions around it as well. All the employees have a much, much better understanding of the end-to-end -end business. And that really links to the, the point to the right here, leveraging the knowledge, skills, and creativity. Because they're all engaged, they all have an understanding then each of them can contribute to the changes in the product, evolution of the product, and even the, the approach and implementation as well. That engagement issue that I talked about, and it can be greatly reduced. Of course, there's a huge increase in the speed of deliveries. There are some difficulties still, you know, working with partners who can't take the agile methodology on board. 
But for me, the last point is the most important. Change is in the hands of the employees. Change is no longer a top-down management directive. Change is with the employees. They decide where they're going to take their product, how it's going to evolve, what they need to do it. And if they need new skills, if they want to learn a new technology, they can do so. So just a brief summary then. Attempt to change, keep trying to succeed or cease to exist. So as well as digitalization, you've got to be aware of technical debt, organizational debt. You've got to understand where your company is behind and whether it's critical to your company that it is behind or not. And of course, what I've described here is not the end. There's always going to be new evolutions happening. Okay, so that's it from me. Thank you. Thank you, Kieran. And Roger, it's all yours. Hi, good evening. Thank you, everybody, for joining so my contribution to the book is a chapter on challenges of digital transformation in the financial sector. The younger people actually asked me, you know, how did we get into this situation that we are in now? So I've tried to explain that in as much detail as I could. The challenges specifically for the financial sector in the, in the banking industry and the insurance industry. Thought I can just size out what the challenges we are in terms of more benchmarking numbers. And then I'll, what I'll try to do is to relate it back to the seriousness of, of the issues that we have. At the top, it looks like an example of a duck, you know, swimming in, in the lake. It looks very calm on the top, but deep down it's, you know, at the bottom, it's, it's working very hard to make it look smooth. So I will try to explain the issues that we face when we come to these challenging projects. The topic here, we can sit down and make some beautiful strategies. And what are the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering those strategies? You know, the issues that example projects have faced when they got a bit deep into the execution and the delivery part. 111 billion lines of code went live in 2017. Now, if you were to break this down to a level where we can understand how quickly this is happening. So in 24 hours, we would have generated 304 million lines of code and working all the way down to seconds, which would be 3,520 lines of code going live every second around the globe. A mobile app is about 40,000 lines of code. So every 12 seconds, we are pushing a, a mobile app into the world. The typical control system of a military drone is 3.5 million, which we can do in a matter of minutes. The purpose of this little number sharing exercise is just to share the sheer number or the size of the challenge that the world is facing today. And I can tell you from full confidence that everything that you put in production today is a legacy in making. Pretty soon down the road, it will become a legacy that will need to be replaced. Before I start, I want to truly show my reservation on using the word digital because I think it's so loosely used that everything digital has created an impression that there is some magic dust that's going to come and fix everything if you call it digital. You know, even if I name myself Digital Raja, it probably wouldn't even sound that bad. Raja can be digital too. So for the purpose of this presentation, I'm going to omit the word digital and just talk about transformation. Which when we create the strategy, key missing components in creating the strategy is the tech-savvy leadership that you know, Will has also mentioned. And these are the quotes that I've taken from digital media. You know, it says 73% of the executives lack in technical knowledge. And when it comes to employees, most employees are not equipped to handle the quick changes and or the quick mindset, which is one of the key things in successfully implementing transformation projects. Either business is engaged at the end when the decisions are made, 
And in some cases, business makes the decision and informs IT. So there's that lack of coordination between the business and the IT when it comes to making these big transformation strategies. Once all of this is done, you know, especially in the financial sector, there's this one big issue or the elephant in the room that is not taken into consideration, which causes most of these projects to either fail or be very challenging. What is that elephant in the room? Now, if you were to take that example of 111 billion lines of code in 2017, how many lines of code were developed on the legacy side of things, if you want to call this the COBOL assembler, third generation is the legacy, almost 1.5 billion line or 1.4% of the effort that was made in 2017 was to still maintain our old legacy systems. Now, if we were to break this down with our little calculation methods, just for the 1.4%, that means every second, 48 lines of code are developed to maintain these legacy systems. And now I will come to the point where, why these are still alive, what challenges do they give us, and why are they so difficult to transform into the next generation? What is in these systems that the old legacy systems? 95% of all the ATM swipes that we do today are COBOL driven. 80% of your in-person transaction, which are mainly to a financial institute, run through some kind of a COBOL system. Every day, if you look at the money that exchanges between the banking system and the stock exchange, it's worth $3 trillion of commerce is still handled through the old COBOL legacy systems. And if you were to take how many lines of code are dedicated to maintain or run these systems, about 220 billion lines of code. For every Google search that takes place, COBOL transaction takes place 200 times more than Google search somewhere in the world. And COBOL still accounts for 70% of the business transactions that take place in the world today. So what I'm trying to establish here is there's a tip of the iceberg and what's underneath. Almost every bank and insurance company has a COBOL system that they use. What is in these legacy systems that is still keeping it alive? And how do we still manage to have all these state-of-the-art systems working is the link that I'm trying to make here on you know, how we are still using these systems. Because we have your product setups are all in your legacy. Although we think we do new business on our mobile phone or a tablet, it still ends up being processed in your legacy. I can give you an example of a company that has a GL in their old COBOL system where it's an insurance company. Even if you buy any uh, materials or pencils or sharpeners, it still goes to that insurance system into the general ledger and into the accounting. What we see today in our next generation languages is that we've created small applications which are omni-channel ready. You, you can use your mobile phone or your tablet or any other device or any internet-based service that we've created. The impression that we get that these are the state-of-the-art system, these are the transformation that we've done, but basically for every one of these satellite systems that we've created, especially in the financial sector, this is where they link back to your old legacy. Now, this is where the challenges are. When we need to do a modernization, we end up connecting it to back in the legacy through either an API or a service layer. There was an aspect that I needed to mention in the book about the specificness of challenges for the Japanese sector. So what I've tried to highlight is that when we bring a product or a system from another country or from your head office in another country, we, we Japanize it. So what we've done in the past is that we've taken a complicated system and made it even more complicated, which adds to the complexity of transformation. 
if you were to add the elephant in the room and see that the challenges that we have and you can also see the moving target we have a code base that is continuously growing we have a code base that we rely on when we create a new system the example i wanted to give is that if we were to create a satellite system for example a illustration system what we end up doing is that we do part of the illustration in our state of the art technology but we still have to relate it back to or link it back to your legacy for it to work the reason we cannot eliminate the corresponding component of that from the legacy is that the skill set required to eliminate this system is reducing the second biggest factor is that these systems are maintained by the vendors who developed it 15 20 30 years ago and because of the lack of knowledge at the client side and the lack of knowledge at the management level these vendors just hold on to it and they would just scare you that it's impossible so it's better to create a satellite system and link it to the legacy for it to work or then to take a risk those who've taken the risk in the past i've got several examples they either failed because the lack of the funding or the funding has run out or the time it took to develop or to do the transformation went so far ahead that they thought it was just easier to just shut this project down the other question there was about japanese government wanted to digitize 20 years ago i can give an example the minister for it in japan appointed by abe san he's the chairman of the hanko association of japan now if we have a chairman of hanko association in running the IT ministry i say no more there has been some success stories in complete eliminating these legacy systems but these things comes with a cost the length and breadth of these projects you have to have the patience to communicate this all the way up to senior management and then get their blessings and wait it's not that it's not possible i mean the commonwealth bank of australia is one of the example i i put down 749.9 million that was a number but actually it's it's a lot more than that it's close to 1100 million dollars they've spent to completely transform their old legacy system into a, a new platform so uh, key factors to keep in mind is the methodologies sdlc is not the correct approach because you see sdlc was developed over the years as a methodology to create new projects or to to develop new projects whereas the life cycle for transformation is totally different is a hybrid of transformation technologies is a hybrid of partially sdlc partially agile because we don't know any other methodology we start with the sdlc which puts us into trouble 6 to 9 months into the project one of the other mistakes that when we develop the strategy is that we combine data migration with application transformation as within one scope actually these are two different projects they should be treated as separate projects because the moment you combine them you put twice as much as effort that needs on one executive or one project manager but they both have different life cycle and they both have different approaches unfortunately when we put that dependencies on the vendors especially the ones who own these products or these legacy systems and you put them in charge of transforming them then somewhere down the road there will be some resistance the other thing because we are so agile in many ways that we cut back on documentation it comes back to bite us when you open up a system which was developed 35 years ago and there was no proper documentation kept most probably the person who developed is either retired or gone somewhere else although it may seem like cutting cost nowadays to avoid the documentation but 
it does come back in the long run to be more expensive not to. Thanking Kieran, Roger and Will for making the time to share the knowledge and do a little redo of the conference at Kyoto University Graduate School of Business that, that happened earlier in the year. And obviously, if you're interested in hearing more, learning more, I think all gentlemen are available to connect on LinkedIn. The book has many more examples. And clearly, as Will said, also that field is developing and they see what the next 18 months bring in Japan and then maybe there's a second edition coming then as well.